Our church is in, in this really interesting place where God's blessed us and we are growing up as a church, coming out from under our sending church and establishing our own identity. And the book of 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to one of his disciples named Timothy who was called to be a pastor at a church in Ephesus. This is the city. And there were some things going on in the church where the church kind of needed to grow up. And so we felt like this is a fitting book for us to delve into as, as a church. So we're going to get into that in 1 Timothy 4 today. Verses 1-16. through Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which has been given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in high school, I played baseball. Um, love baseball. Spring training is upon us. It's great. It's fun. It's good stuff. My senior year, uh, the varsity baseball team had the opportunity to go from Kentucky, where I grew up, uh, down to uh, the Destin area to play in an annual baseball tournament during spring break. As you can imagine, we were pretty excited about going to play baseball on the beach. All of our favorite things together, right? As we were pre preparing for that, our coaches were really concerned about us being strong and, you know, putting our best effort forth. But a lot of the teammates were really more concerned about getting their body in shape for the beach, if you know what I'm saying. And so I, I, remember, uh, I remember a couple of guys on the team said, hey, coach, we really want a good six-pack, you know, for the beach. And, uh, and, and, and our coach said something I'll never forget. He said, boys, six-packs are made in the kitchen. And what he meant by that is the way that your core is shaped has a lot more to do with what you eat than how you work out. I mean, sure, you need both of them, but six-packs are made in the kitchen. And I was reminded... Uh, about, you know, I have, a, I have a, a guy that helps me kind of stay on track with fitness. And one of the first things that he wanted to do as he's kind of helping me with this, he, he said, okay, what we need to do is we need to take an assessment of where you actually are right now, where you are physically, what your diet's like and all that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm in pretty good shape. You know, this is going to be good. So he says, what I want you to do is I want you to journal everything that you eat. 
Anybody ever done that before? I mean, I, I got to be honest, like I was tempted to like not tell the truth. It did change the way I eat, ate a little bit, but writing down like, hey, ho-hos and Twinkies like on there, that was a little bit painful to do that. Uh, so he said, hey, write this down and let's get some baseline workouts and let's see where you're at. And this is what we're going to do today as a church. The, 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 the chapter of 1 Timothy 4 is about really, really about the, the long-term health of the church. What does it look like to be a church that goes the long haul? That isn't, that isn't focused on instant gratification, but says, hey, let's make disciples and let's last. Let's, let's build something that lasts generationally in Lawrenceville through God's Spirit. And that's kind of what we're looking at today. And, and the direction that Paul takes us in 1 Timothy 4 is he talks a lot about uh, having a diet of the Word and an exercise of godliness. So we're going to talk about you know, what your doctor would tell you if you said, hey, I want to get healthy. He's going to talk to you about diet and exercise before he talks about anything else. So that's exactly where we are going to go today. So let's get into 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-6. through 6. What we notice in these Scriptures right here is that the, the first thing uh, that, that, that Paul wants to mention is that the Word and prayer have to prevail in a church's life if they want to last the long haul. That the Word and prayer really have to prevail for long-term health. Listen to what Paul says in verses 1-3. through three. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. A sobering, right? Some people will depart from the faith that they'll be a part of the visible church, but they'll fade away. In the church in Ephesus, he's saying. And they'll do this by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the church, the truth. So the question is, why does the church at Ephesus prefer cotton candy teaching over grilled asparagus? You know what I mean? Why do they prefer cotton candy? And it, guys, this is really true today in our in our in our context in our culture. I have conversations every single day with people that say, "Hey, look, you know, like my church isn't like preaching the word anymore." I mean, like at least once a week, I'm hearing that kind of go out. So why? Do they prefer that? Why do they prefer the cotton candy teaching over the grilled asparagus? Something that's, 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 that's long term for them and their health. It's because they struggle with the same thing that we struggle with. The desire to be instantly gratified. Right kids? I mean, if you had before you, if you had grilled asparagus and cotton candy, what are you going to pick the first time every time? Cotton candy. It's what you're going to pick because it's instantly gratifying. But delayed gratification is what's best for the long term. Kids, this is why your parents never let you eat dessert before you eat the entree. Am I right? I mean, I tried to do that my, my whole childhood. Give me the dessert first. We have to eat what is actually nutritious to us before we can get to uh, the, 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 you know, the, the candy, the cotton candy kind of stuff. So Ephesus is teaching all of these things that are outside of the Bible. Paul's basically calling them cotton candy. He says, look, they're requiring abstinence. So what's that mean? They're requiring that really you don't need to get married to be holy. And they're requiring that you don't eat certain foods. They're forbidding marriage, requiring abstinence from foods. And they're saying that this is the pathway to godliness. 
That this is what it looks like to be godly. You've got to do these things. And, and, and Paul's kind of saying, hey, take me to the Word of God where it says that I have to do that. And really that ought to be our posture anytime that someone comes against us and says, hey, if you really want to live a godly life, you have to do X, Y, or Z. We need to go back to the truth and say, where is this in the Bible? Here's what I would call spiritual junk food. It's any teaching uh, or, or, or thought uh, that, that causes you to believe that you can get better about your sin condition without Jesus. It's, it's any kind of teaching that would say, hey, you can get better about this condition that you have called sin without Jesus. And there, there's a lot of bolt-ons in our culture, a lot of self-helpism, a lot of practices that really don't lead us to deeper dependence on Jesus. And those things are ultimately, but, but what Paul says about those ultimately is not that it's just false teaching, that it's the teaching of demons. Isn't it, that sounds a little harsher than false teaching, doesn't it? He says the teaching of demons, if it's leading you to depend more on yourself than it is on Jesus. The teaching of demons. That's strong language. I don't think we think about it um, in those terms a lot of times. And it's the teaching of demons or false teaching a lot of times is, is it's more subtle than it is overt. It just kind of creeps in and it, and, it, and it teaches you to kind of to kind of go on your own direction to be holy and to be godly apart from the person of Jesus. And so Paul is saying uh, you know, to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, if, if you lay out a, a good meal before the brothers as their pastor, you will serve them well. J.C. Ryle kind of talks about it like this. He says the means of grace, and the means of grace is, a, is kind of a fancy term for basically how do we grow in Jesus? How do we grow in Christ? He says the means of grace are such as Bible reading, Private prayer, regular worship, worship uh, uh, in church, where one hears the word taught, participates in the Lord's Supper, and then get this. He says, "I lay it down as a simple matter of fact that no one who is careless about such things much ever must ever expect to make make much progress in sanctification." So, why should you expect to grow in Jesus when you don't give your life to those things? Is what he's saying. Why should you expect to grow? And a lot of times we neglect those things and we wonder why God seems cold to us. He says you shouldn't expect to grow. So basically what's he saying? Don't expect to look like a, a, a spiritual Arnold Schwarzenegger if you're eating cotton candy. Don't expect to look like that. Don't you love it how when you go to the gym they have pictures like Arnold Schwarzenegger like, like you could be this guy. I mean, he's a freak of nature. Many are tempted to become, you know, really as Thomas Jefferson uh, did um, Thomas Jefferson had this, this Bible that was his, and what Thomas Jefferson began to do, he's one of the founders of our country, as he began to pick and choose what he believed to be truth in the Bible. You can look this up. And so what he did was he, he cut out all the things in the Bible. He took like one of those little kind of marking pens where you kind of cut out things in your, on a piece of paper, and he began to cut out all the miracles. Uh, he began to cut out all the supernatural things in the Bible. And, and, and it became known as the Jefferson Bible. Friends, the Bible is not a menu. I want you to hear this. It's not a menu. It's not we pick and choose what we want to hear. The Bible is a manual. The Bible is a manual that tells us who we are in relationship to God and how we ought to live in relationship to that. When we settle for things less or outside of the Bible, we can't expect to be spiritually healthy. We ought to funnel everything through God's Word. 
And he says when people believe things that aren't in the Bible, they're departing from the faith. It's, the, it's, the, it's kind of the core issue when they begin to believe outside of that or they begin to neglect concern for the truth of God. Second, Second Timothy 3.5, so Paul's second letter to Timothy about this church in Ephesus, says this right here. Having the appearance of godliness, he's talking, this is the context of false teaching. He says, having the appearance of godliness... But, den- but denying its power. That's, that's what happens when you begin to go down that road. You have the appearance of godliness, but you deny its power. And he says, avoid such people. So what does he mean having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power? What does he mean by that? He's asking the question, are you content with the appearance of godliness? The, the appearance that you've got everything together, but you don't have the power. You don't have the power of godliness. What's the power of godliness? The power of godliness is God's Spirit living inside of us. Bringing the spiritually dead to life and empowering us to walk out this mystery of godliness. The fact that it's about Jesus living inside of us. And and a quick way to really diagnose this in any situation is this. Who does your life depend on? At the end of the day, who does your life depend on? Is it, is it possible for you to make it happen today? To kind of set Jesus on the shelf and just kind of make it happen? Just blow through the day? I mean, I have days like this, guys. I know you do too. In those days, we're depending on the appearance of godliness without the power of godliness. And that's a grave mistake to make. We need the power of godliness alive in us. So, so Paul goes on to say, 1 Timothy 4, he says, Okay, you got to get rid of the junk food. We've established that we've got to get rid of the extra stuff that's not in the Bible that we are taking as gospel, taking as truth, and we've got to eat the good stuff. And the kids say, oh, I don't want to eat the good stuff. We've got to eat the good stuff. So listen to what he says in verse 4 here. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So, so what's he saying? He's saying, he's saying basically this, Jesus and His Word, like Jesus is the head chef in Ephesus. I just want you to know that, Timothy. He's the head chef. He's the one that's calling the shots. He's the one that's laying out the diet. But Timothy... Brother, you're to serve the church in Ephesus as a sous chef, as an under chef to Jesus. You're to be an under shepherd of the church of Jesus because we've got to raid the pantry, we've got to get out the Twinkies and the Ho-Hos, and we've got to start serving some, some meat and not milk. We've got to start giving them something that will actually give them life. And we as the church have to put the words of Jesus in front of us. If if the words of Jesus are not in front of us, I'm not talking about just the red letters in your Bible, by the way. I'm talking about every word of the Bible. They're they're all red. All of them are red. They're all God's words. We have to put this in front of us. And then it's by the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer that we begin to adjust our lives to what we see in the Word instead of trying to make God fit our lives. That's what it looks like. Soren Kierkegaard, he's this Danish theologian from the 19th century, says this, prayer does not change God. 
I know there are scriptures like Exodus 32, places like that that say that God relented from the disaster. As a rule of thumb, prayer does not change God. But what happens in prayer is that it changes Him who prays. God shapes and shifts us through His Spirit that's alive in us to align with His Word. That's what happens. That's how we grow. That's why the Word and prayer have to go tandem together. And I just want to give you a real practical application on that. Like if you're, if you're struggling in your quiet time like to, to get to a place where you're seeing your sin and seeing God's Word and kind of walking in repentance, George Mueller had this great approach. It was super simple. And George Mueller is a remarkable guy, by the way. He, this is a guy that single-handedly cared for 10,000 orphans in his day. He's a British missionary. George Mueller. He, he would, here's what he would do. He would get in the Word in the morning and he would read until he saw something in the Bible that didn't line up with his life. You know, uh, so it could be, you know, something, uh, you know, from the Psalms about, you know, um, that there's nothing I desire instead of God. Something like that. Well, well, George would stop me and be like, well, there's actually a lot of things I desire this morning. And he would just sit in that. As long as he needed to sit in there to be able to begin to walk in repentance. He would preach the Gospel to himself as he would see the Word and see that his life didn't line up with it. But a lot of times we'll see things in the Bible and we'll just keep blowing by them. What if we stopped and we just said, God, my life doesn't line up right there. I don't really believe that You're gracious. I don't really believe that You're loving. Would You, would you help me? Would You give me the power by Your Spirit to change me into that? If we just stopped and just sat in that and watched God begin to change us. Prayer is our access to the power of God's Spirit to conform us. We can't conform ourselves to the image of Jesus. We can't do it. We, can't, we, we have to have God's power to do that. Ian Bounds kind of wraps it up like this. He wrote this awesome little book on prayer. He says, the Word of God is the food, kind of going along with our theme this morning, I hope you're hungry, is the food by which prayer is nourished and made strong. It's the food by which prayer is nourished and made strong. So, in other words, we, we really can't expect to align with God's will without God's Word. So we can pray all day long. But if we're not praying through the lens of God's revealed will, which is in His Word, how can we expect to line up with His will? We can pray all day long for this, that, and the other, but when we're in the Word, it funnels and focuses us to what we know is true about God. And we've talked about this a lot together as a church. There are so many times that we focus on the mysterious things about God and we spend 90% of our time there. And we think, God, I don't know why You did this, that, or the other. While we neglect the things that we know to be true about God, we would be far better served to spend our time knowing what we know to be true about God. And as we walk that out and live that out, a lot of times God makes the mystery a little bit more clear. Or at least He makes our hearts a little bit more secure in the middle of the mystery. The things that we don't know. Alright, good stuff. So we're, we're talking about the diet of godliness. Let, let's look at or the diet of the Word. Let's look at the exercise of godliness as we kind of keep going through 1 Timothy 7 here. <clears throat> Last week, we preached this sermon and we said that the mystery of godliness is the fact that we need Jesus to come and change us from the inside. If we ever want to be godly, like that's the pathway forward. We, we, said, we even said something along the lines of when we know who our Father is, we know how to live. So when we know who our Heavenly Father is, we know how to live. 
And how many times do we spend most of our time thinking about how do I live for God today? What would it look like to be godly today? And the Scriptures are really saying in this whole idea of the mystery of godliness that if we would focus more on who our Father in Heaven is and who we are into relation to Him, we would, the, the, the question about how to live would be a lot more easy to answer. We would know because we would be connected to our Father. This week I was listening to an audio book that's fantastic. It's called Tattoos of the Heart. It's this, it's this guy that uh, has started a ministry in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, and his name is Greg Boyle. And his ministry is called, get this, Homeboy Industries. Homeboy Industries. Now, Greg is called to minister among gang members in downtown L.A. And this guy has more stories than I have ever heard that are just absolutely fascinating kind of God stories. And one of the stories that he shares is about this, uh, about this ex-gang member named Caesar, or that, that's what he calls him in the book anyway. And Caesar uh, has just got, he's just been released from uh, the stint that he did uh, in the penitentiary. And he gets out and, and he meets Greg and Greg kind of uh, picks him up and they go out for lunch. And after their lunch, uh, you know, Caesar doesn't have any clothes. He's just gotten out of, you know, several years of prison. And so Greg's like, okay, I'm going to take you to JCPenney. We're going to get you fixed up so you can get a job. And uh, so they're, they're going in uh, to JCPenney and shopping and, you know, dropping a couple hundred bucks on some clothes. And uh, there's this guy that Caesar sees in JCPenney. And, and I, have, I have to imagine that Caesar's a pretty big guy, you know, probably has the, the tattoos and, and stuff like that. He's probably a pretty scary guy. And he, he walks up to this, this guy that's just shopping, this customer, and he says, hey, I know you. And the guy goes, uh, no, you don't. And he starts kind of backpedaling. He's with his family. He goes, what? No, I, I know you. I remember you. And the guy says, no, you don't know me. And Caesar's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I thought you were somebody else. And the guy's like freaking out. And so he's telling Greg about this situation that happened in the stores during the line. And he's speaking very loudly. So like everybody in the store can hear him. And they leave the store that day. And that night, Greg gets a call at 3 o'clock in the morning from Caesar. And he calls, Greg answers the phone, and Caesar says, they call him G because his name's Greg, um, or maybe for other reasons, but he says, hey G, you awake? And Greg's like, what do you think? It's 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm not awake. What do you need? And immediately he sits into this really serious conversation. He says, yo G, I've been thinking all night. I don't know my dad, man. I, I, I don't know my dad. He said, but you feel like my dad. Gee, are you my dad? And Greg says, yes, yeah, Caesar. I'm your dad, man. He wasn't speaking that he was really his biological father. But he was his father in the faith because he had seen something in Caesar that Caesar didn't see in himself. And Caesar, because of his connection to Greg begin to feel more secure in his identity. And, and Greg says that Caesar began to walk out a life um, that, that, that really blessed God's name out of that relationship. And it was all God's work. But Caesar was far more secure in who he was. And, and all the gang stuff that he got caught up in was really just an attempt to find out who he was. And really, isn't that anything that we idolize? It's just our attempt to find out who we are and try to discover our own identity. I say all that 
to say that when we know who our Father is, we ultimately know how to live. So here's, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about I'm going to talk three, three quick points on what it means to train for godliness, what it means to exercise godliness. The first thing is this. It's really not a, not, not, a, not a proactive work on our part. It's really a reactive work that we talked about last week, and it's this, that we have to abide. We have to abide in Jesus if we ever want to be godly. We have to receive the love of Jesus, and this is the mystery of godliness. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a very familiar passage that you've probably heard before. But a lot of people don't talk about the first three verses. The first three verses say this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move, remove mountains, but have not love, I have nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What's Paul saying here? What's he saying? It doesn't matter what your life looks like on the outside. If you haven't received the love of Jesus, you are not godly. You are not holy. It is what you do with Jesus that changes absolutely everything about your life. Because when we're plugged into Jesus by the Spirit, we have the power to advance the kingdom because it's Jesus living inside of us. I had a, a homeowner problem this week. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Something I had to fix. Dryer went out. Appliances. Jeez, are you kidding me? So I get my tools out, and I get YouTube out, right? Because that's what you do. And I'm like, what's going on with this? I mean, it sounds like a shrieking cat is stuck inside my dryer. It's like, ah, just screaming. And Megan's like, I don't know. I just started doing it this morning. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to drop five or 600 bucks to buy a new dryer here. But I say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it an hour to try to fix it. So I take it apart. I figure out what the issue is. I put some oil on it to make it sound, you know, hopefully ease everything up, clean it out. There's tons of stuff in there. It was not pretty. Clean it out, put it all back together, plug it in, and I push the power button, and it doesn't turn on. But see, this is a problem because it did turn on before I touched it, so it's my fault. And so I get the tools back out, and I'm not happy, as you can imagine. And I take it back apart, and I'm like, what has gone wrong with this? I'm hunting around in it, and finally I see this little plug to the motherboard. It's unplugged. Somehow, somehow it's become unplugged from the motherboard and so the power is not going to the dryer and I think this is what life is like when you try to be godly without Jesus is that on the outside you look like things should work but you're unplugged on the inside you're dead on the inside guys if we ever want to look like Jesus Jesus has to be alive on the inside of us we have to be plugged into his spirit and brought to life by him so once we get there once we get to that baseline of I believe in Jesus I cannot do this on my own I'm plugged into His Spirit. His power is alive in me. Then from that, we get to work. We train for godliness. Paul says we strive for godliness. We want to be like Jesus. Listen to verses 8-11 uh, through 11 in chapter 4. For while bodily training is of some value, we would agree with that, bodily training is of some value. Some of us think it's of more value than others, but that's okay. 
Bodily training is of some value, but godliness, oh, it's different. It's of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, but also the life to come. That's significant. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, listen to the language he uses, we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God. So we're not looking at this life, we're looking at the living God and His in His domain, in His His kingdom, who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. Command and teach these things. So what's he saying? Effort. Effort is what God requires of us. In fact, it says in Philippians 2, it says that we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you guys of all people know that the Apostle Paul, did, he believed by ju- justification uh, by faith alone. So what do you mean train for godliness? Well, he's talking about your sanctification. How were you made more like Jesus? Like, you can't do anything to be justified. He has to come to you and you have to, con- you have to confess your sin when He wakes your heart up. But to be sanctified is a different thing. He empowers us to get to work, to, to train for godliness, to strive, to toil. To think more about our spiritual progress in the Gospel than we do our physical bodies. To consider that more. And why would we consider that more? Because he says it's eternal. It's eternal. What you gain in Jesus this side of heaven, you take with you. We get the most bang for our buck when we invest in training for godliness and becoming more like Jesus. When you go to the gym, do you know what happens to your muscles in order for them to grow? What happens? When you work them, they hurt the next day, don't they? Do you know why they hurt? It's because they're ripped to shreds and broken down. There's a a little bit of decay, if I may dare say, that happens in the muscle so that it can grow. And sometimes when life hits us, and we are Christians, and we get paralyzed and disoriented, we are forgetting the fact that God makes us stronger by first breaking us down. As he says in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says that, that we're called to actually boast not in our strength, but to boast in weakness. When is the last time you boasted in weakness? We don't boast in weakness because we think that that's leading us further away from God. He calls us to boast in weakness. Why? And here's this word again. So that the power of God can be displayed in your life. And what was the biggest threat earlier? It was to have the appearance of godliness without the the power. God is after His glory being displayed in your life. And that is best displayed through your weakness. And so you work and you train to be like Jesus out of this approval that He's given to you because God is your Father. But we boast in our weakness. And the payoff is huge for us as His church. When's the last time you boasted in your weakness? Where's a weakness in your life right now that you're trying to cover up and hide that God may be trying to get glory out of actually? And what would it look like for you to look to God in the middle of the weakness that's so uh, cumbersome in your life? What would it look like to, to take that situation and to say, God, what are you doing right now? And to let other people in on that. Jesus wants to get glory through that, whatever it is. Because His power is made perfect. It's it's displayed in our weakness. 
James talks about this in James chapter 1. He says, he says it like this, For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once he forgets what he looks like. Now, we look at the mirror so that we know what we look like. We look at the mirror a lot. I mean, you go to the bathroom, you know, when you're getting ready for work, whatever it is. You're looking at the mirror so that you know what you look like. <clears throat> but sometimes, you know what we're tempted to do? We're tempted to hear and not respond. We're tempted to just to, to, to listen to the Word, but yet to walk on with our life and let it not change us. Remember the stuff I was talking about with George Mueller. So we see a reflection in the mirror, and you know what you do? You notice you got like a booger in your nose or something, or you got a huge ear hair. I mean, where does ear hair come from anyway? Guys, can anybody relate? My wife's looking, she's like, yeah, get that ear trimmer out. You know? Anyway, we look in the mirror and we make adjustments. Am I right or am I right? We make adjustments. Why do we look at the mirror of the Word of God and just walk away from it? He calls us to make adjustments to our life. And, and he, is so, he is so jealous to change you when you look at His Word and begin to walk in the light of He's in the light. He is so jealous. He wants you to look more like Jesus than you do. And he wants to do that work in you through the power of His Spirit. So why does a person forget? I think we forget because we don't let the, the Word marinate and penetrate our hearts. We just kind of let it bounce off of us. Just like a comment that we don't really want to hear from someone. What would it look like for you this week to marinate in the Word? To really sit in it and ask God to, to search you and know you as the psalmist says. Not out of fear that you're going to be condemned or that God isn't going to be pleased with you because that's secure. That's dealt with on the cross. But out of the fact that you want to go deeper in Jesus. That you want, you want Word and deed to go together in your life. You want, to, you want to hear the Word, receive the Word, and proclaim and demonstrate the Word to the world. I think a lot of times we're afraid of what we might see when the Word goes a little deeper in us. And I'm here to tell you this today, that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid whenever we see things that we'd rather not see in our own hearts. Because God wants to change you. He wants to meet you there. He, God doesn't love some future better version of you. You hear me? He, he, he can't love that person because it doesn't exist. He loves you as you are. That's why He sent Jesus. And so as we deal with sin, we are identifying with the fact that we need Jesus. That we, that we need to be weak because it's the, our only way out. It's our only hope. It's our only strength in life. What would it look like for you to need Jesus? To train for godliness. To, to look at the mirror and by God's grace make some adjustments in your life. Lastly, the Scriptures call us in 1 Timothy 4 to persevere. And what does this mean? It's to extend the life and love of Jesus with your gifting and your identity. Each and every one of us, we've talked about this, are made unique. And that's not a problem. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Some of you are introverted. Some of you are extroverted. We all are different in our giftings. Some of you have the gift of teaching. Some of you 
have the gift of mercy. We need all of the gifts. Here's what I want you to hear as we get into 1 Timothy 4, 12-16. I need you. You need me. We need we. We need the whole thing. Because when the body isn't working together, when some of the gifts are neglected, everyone suffers. So we got to figure out what's malfunctioning in our lives that we're not serving the body with the gifts that God's Spirit has given to us by His power. We've got to figure out what's going on there because it's a really important thing. So let's look at the Scriptures. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.12-16. He says this, Let no one despise you for your youth, Timothy. Timothy's probably around 30 or so. Leading a big church in Ephesus with a lot of problems. Don't let anyone despise you for your youth, Timothy. But instead, set the example, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Set them an example, Timothy. Don't be afraid. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, Timothy. Don't back down. To exhortation, even though you're younger than them. To teaching. Timothy, do not, verse 14, neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Just like every elder in the history of the world is installed by the laying on of hands. Do not neglect that gift, Timothy. Why? Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress, Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, Timothy. And why do we have to persist in our gifting that the Spirit of God has given us, church? Because by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And when he says you, it's not that Timothy's going to save them, but the Spirit of God alive in Timothy will draw men and women to Himself through the work of Christ. That's why it's important. When we live out our calling and our identity and our gifting that God has given us, people are saved. Eternity is on the line. Think about this. God has chosen, out of all the ways that He could have organized His church, He's, He's chosen to work through each and every one of you to draw unbelievers to faith in Jesus. Not one of you in here is an exception. That's His plan. That's His plan. That's why we've got to figure it out. That's why we're doing a three-week class starting next week. Let's just delve into this thing. Let's see who we are in Jesus so that we can live out of this thing. It's important. Because not only other people's salvation is on the line, it says your salvation is on the line, Timothy. You're going to save yourself and your hearers. And it's not like if he doesn't teach, you know, God's going to punish him. But he's saying there's something that comes alive inside of each and every one of us when we live out that design in Jesus. When we let Jesus have His way in us. There's something that comes alive when we obey Him. When we follow Him. So where do we start at with this? How do we start living out of our gifting? Once again, in 2 Timothy, Paul addresses this. He says, for this reason, Timothy, I remind you, listen to this, fan into flame the gift of God. Fan it into flame, Timothy. Fan into flame the gift of God, which is something you got to go look for. No, which is in you, Timothy. The gift is in you through the Spirit. Through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, young Timothy, but of power and of love 
and of self-control. So what's he saying? The gift of God is given gradually in our lives. It's given gradually. When we, as, 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 the, as the parable of the dishonest manager says in the Gospels, when we're faithful in the little, what does God do? He gives more responsibility. But sometimes we are crippled by our inability because we want to have another, we want to have more measure of the gift. And we want more domain, we want more responsibility. And, and I think God is saying to us a lot of times, you haven't been faithful in the thing that's right in front of you, Timothy. You gotta be faithful, you gotta fan that thing into flame. It's just like, you know, folks that I talk to that um, you know, really struggle with generosity. It's like, man, if I just had more money, I would give more. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that that's true because Jesus teaches in the Gospels that, that the greatest, one of the greatest gifts ever given in the church in His time was by a widow that gave a mite. That's all she had. What are we doing with what God has put right in front of us? The opportunities He's put right in front of us and the gift He's put right inside of us. What are we doing with that now? Because it's His Spirit that's working in and through us. We gotta, if, if we're paralyzed in our gifting and our participation in advancing the kingdom, we've got to figure out what's malfunctioning. We've got to figure out what's sidelining us because eternity is on the line, is what, is what Paul says to Timothy. We've got we to ask God to reveal that, to, to, to bring it out. I mean, he's saying, look, you know, I know that there's sometimes you want kind of the big, the big platform, Ryan. You want to teach on Sunday morning, but you don't want to teach your kids at home. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes we want it, we want the want the big audience, we want the recognition, but we're not willing to be faithful in the little things. I was uh, with two pastor buddies of mine uh, recently on a little retreat, and um, one of the guys used to be a chef. And so, guys, when I say we ate, we ate. You know what I'm saying? Like he he brought like a, I mean he brought like this huge bone-in ribeye thing, and like I mean I just had all this made this blood orange marinade and put on top of it. I mean, it was just like, it was incredible. The best eating I've done in a long time and a little too much of it. But so we're sitting there and I've really got no gifts to bring to the table for this weekend. They're cooking, you know, they're getting everything ready. And they say, okay, Ryan, we'll, get, we'll throw a bone to you. Go start the fire for after dinner. Go start the fire up back. I'm thinking, okay, I got this. I can start the fire. That's something I can do. I grew up in Kentucky. I like to go camping. I can start this fire. So I walk outside and I gather the wood, throw it in the fire pit, and, um, and then I do something different. I do something that I'd never do when I start a fire. There's a thing of lighter fluid sitting next to the fire. I'm thinking, we're going we're gonna to blow this thing up quick, that way I can get back inside. So I put the lighter fluid on there, and I light it, and all of a sudden it's like, whoosh, huge flame. And I'm thinking, okay, we are good to go. So I walk back in, I'm like, hey guys, check out the fire, look outside of the fire pit. There's nothing to see when they look outside. There's nothing to see because when you throw a little lighter fluid on it, it's just getting the wood a little wet and then it's, it's burning out. I circumvented the process. I didn't fan the embers into flame for the fire. Instead, I wanted kind of the big platform. I wanted the big boom. That way I could go back in. I didn't do the hard work of being faithful with the little, you know, the little twigs and, and fanning them into flame to get the embers white hot. And when they get white hot, it doesn't matter what you put on top of them. It's going to go up in flames. It's going to go up 
in flames. Church, God wants us to burn white hot from the inside out. And that happens as we know who our Father is in heaven. We pursue what the Scripture lays out for godliness, who Jesus is, we pursue that, and we let God live out of us. When those things come together, we start burning white hot for Jesus. And that's what a long view of faithfulness looks like for us in the city church. Let's pray. Father, we want to be faithful. We, uh, we want to follow You. We want to grow in You. We want to see ourselves as You see us, which is deeply beloved children that are, that are unworthy, but yet so worthy because You're willing to pay the, the, the biggest price ever for them. And so Lord, for those in here today that doubt who they are in You, I wonder if anybody even sees them. God, I pray that You'd comfort them by Your Spirit today. That You would show them that they have so much to give to the church. That You have so much life that You want to live out of them through Your Spirit. For those in here that are looking for a church, they've been wandering around all over the city trying to find a place to fit in. God, I pray that they would begin to look at the things You're putting right in front of them. For those that are sidelined, I feel like they don't have anything remarkable to offer. I pray they'd be employed by Your Spirit to do the faithful little things that make an eternal difference. It's in His name we pray. Amen.